people in 2008 lost so much money because they were, it wasn't the people that were buying cash flow, right? Those are, those guys are very rich right now. The guys that lost all their money are the guys that were putting 125, getting loans, 125% LTV, right? The guys that are flipping and trying to make a quick buck that didn't know what they were doing. So the question is this, how do most agents find the secrets to succeed in today's competitive real estate market, especially when the top agents are keeping those secrets to themselves? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hi, I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars this is your host, Aaron Amuchastegui. Today, I get to interview Craig Kurlop. So Craig has been on all sorts of podcasts out there. He wrote some books. He Right now, he lives in Denver, Colorado. The, his, his real estate team out there is you know, agents who are also investors. So I think that the, they do a lot of focus on you know, investing through real estate. We're going to get to talk about a lot of stuff, including you know, his book and what he's been working on and everything else in Denver. So Craig, thanks for joining me on the show. Aaron, thanks so much for having me on, man. I've been looking forward to this for some time now. That's awesome. So, so you live in Denver, the, and I think you, you said you've lived there for, for four or five years? Yep, just about four years. Okay. And the, what has, what's it, what's it like out there right now? What's, and what, you know, just in general, like we could be COVID real estate. What's it like to live in Denver over the last year? Yeah. So, you know, Denver's obviously an amazing place, super outdoorsy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all the people out here are, you know, pretty fit, pretty healthy, which is, which is an all lifestyle I really like to abide by, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the real estate market, I think it's pretty similar to anywhere else in the country where it is just absolutely exploding, blowing up, you know, last January, February, like just before COVID, it was insane. Things were going for, you know, 40, 50, 60, $70,000 above list price pretty consistently. Then COVID hit, everything shut down in the big scare, right? When kind of the whole country shut down. And even real estate, real estate business even shut down. But there were still, I was still kind of doing some, some, you know, talking with the agents and just saying, hey, like, is there any way you can just come check it out? Like kind of under the table, whatever it is, you know? And they were like, yeah, we just want to sell this house. And so, you know, once COVID hit, we were doing deals like super easy, right? Below asking, no competition. Like, you know, it was a really good time to buy for my clients in April, May of 2020. Then, you know, every, you know, COVID kind of became the new norm and things kind of started to open up for a while. Things got back to normal. But now more recently, kind of like, you know, we're recording this January of 2021, uh, you know, I'd say like it's kind of in the middle. You know, it's not totally open like Florida, but it's not, you know, totally shut down like California. We're kind of like somewhere in between where restaurants are, ocu- are operating at 25% capacity there's absolutely showings allowed. They try not to overlap the showings. There's no open houses that are happening, but you know, we're still trying to do business. Yeah. You're the first person that's actually candidly like admitted or talked about the idea that in, in April and May, you could get houses for a deal, right? People sure. have said like, you know, COVID happened and prices just went up even more and the real estate market's been booming. But the, I mean, my listeners have heard me say like, I, like I took a risk and I had an extra house in March and I like, I listed it 10% below what it should have listed at. Cause I was so terrified. And I was like, I just need to sell this house. I don't want an extra house going into the biggest crisis of our lives. Well, it, it, I was wrong, 
but man, the, yeah, the people that were willing to go show, show the houses back in April, May, they could get good deals because we were afraid. I even, I'd even bought a brand new house and moved into it. And I remember being like, man, I wish I had my down payment back. I, uh, I'm a little worried that I bought this big house right before, you know, we're about to have this economic crisis. And so the, and so it was one of the places you said where you couldn't even really like, you could kind of show houses, but they didn't even really like that. I know a lot of places said that real estate was essential early on, or agents were allowed to go and do like virtual showings. Had that been a thing? Were your clients going with you or were you doing virtual showings? Uh, it was largely virtual showings. In some cases, the clients came with me, in particular if the house was vacant and, and there wasn't really an issue. And, and if the listing agent didn't really care. And so that's kind of like, you know, I always made sure that, you know, all parties were okay with it. And, but at the end of the day, the listing agent wants to sell the house. Like my client wants to buy the house. And I was telling my clients, I was like, look, this is an opportunity we're never going to see again. There's a two month window here. Or at the time we didn't know how long the window would be, but we figured it was a pretty short window of like super scaredness to a new normal. And we needed to like hit this window in order to get deals. While I think showing appointments were down 88%. I'm like, mm-hmm. damn, am I the only one showing houses? Right? Like, yeah. this is amazing, right? It was like, it was like shooting fish in a barrel there in, in those couple months. And, you know, we got some pretty good deals out of it. That is, you know, what? that's really good insight and good for you that you guys pushed so hard at the beginning, because it was it was such a nerve wracking time. It was like, there's always big opportunity when you eliminate competition. Right. And you take risks. That's why I love investing in courthouse step foreclosures, because there's not a lot of competition at it most of the time. And when there is a lot of competition, then I need to go find a different area or a different something because I like not having competition. And, you know, there's the old saying that, you know, if you, uh, you know, don't do what everybody else does. Right. So the if everybody's afraid, you should take, you know, take some risks. And if everybody's taking risks and you should be afraid. And uh, it's kind of, you went to that mantra. And then the fact you got some good deals out of it, that's pretty awesome. How long have you been a real estate agent? So I've been, I've, I've had my license since November, 2017. So like three, a little over three years. However, okay. for those first two years, I was only an agent for myself. Okay. So I've also starting really in August of 2019 was the first time I accepted a client that was not myself and slowly realized that there was a niche here of people wanting to get into house hacks and people wanted to get into investment properties. And there was really no agent, or at least very few agents out there that could guide someone from, you know, from looking at houses to running the numbers, to giving them contractors, to basically just be in their coach the entire way from, from, from initial conversation all the way till close and even past close. And when it comes to managing the property and getting tenants and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, especially first time investors really value that. And so that was kind of how I differentiated myself from the other agents in the market and had a pretty successful last year and a half. Yeah. So you got your license in 2017, but that was just so you could buy investment properties. Did you already own investment properties at the time? Had you bought some prior and decided you were going for it? When did you buy your first house? Yeah. So I bought my first house in June, 2017. So that was my first like house hack. Uh, that I did not, I was not an agent for. I had a, I was represented by another agent. And in November, 2017, like I just said, I got my license. So that way my second and third one, I did myself. And then I realized like, man, if I can like get an extra 10 grand here and there for each sale I do, like that's, that's not a bad gig. Yeah. So I helped, a, I helped a buddy out who wanted a house hack. I helped another buddy out who wanted the house hack. And I was like, 
man, this is like kind of nice. Like there, there's worse things in the world than getting 10 grand to death, you know? And yeah. so I, I was pretty Especially happy. You're trying to be an agent yourself. You're like, Hey, yeah, getting this extra commission is going to help pay for the, the new appliances for that the house or one, any of your other investments or down payments or all sorts of stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, most recently we just, uh, me and my lender actually teamed up for a deal most recently and he, he got a pretty, he got a good rate cause he was the lender. Right. And I, basically had the seller paid like pay down our closing costs as well as paying down our rate instead of paying the commission. So we got our most recent investment property at like 2.25% for like a 30 year fixed investment property. And you just like, it's so hard to lose, right? With, with those rates. That's really interesting. So you took, so you're like, instead of paying me a commission, so you're like writing the offer and saying, Hey, no buyer's agent commission. So you're going to save three percent there but instead you're going to spend three percent to buy down the rate so you get you get to buy buy the property you don't get taxed on your income at that yep. point and then now you have a yeah a two percent rate forever so tell me about the first house that you bought so before you got an agent what was that experience like why did you decide to buy one and you know just tell, tell us about that process for sure yeah so i was basically just gung-ho on financial independence and i saw real estate as the fastest way to get there right Rental income exceeds your expenses, you're financially free, and you can start taking bigger risks. And so house hacking was the obvious first choice as someone with not a whole lot of money. You know, I maybe had 40 or 50,000 at the time. And also didn't, it's just so much easier because when you go home to your investment, it's like if something breaks, you're just going home to fix it, right? So on the weekend you go upstairs or whatever it is, it's super easy. And you're always seeing what's going on at the house. And so that first property I bought was a duplex, uh, top, bottom, uh, both one bed, one bath, totally renovated. It was basically a flip. And the reason why I bought a flip was, which is kind of against the grain, right? Like you hear a lot of people say, oh, you want to buy these fixer uppers and all that kind of stuff. But like for a house hack, I totally disagree because you want to get in, get it rented and start saving for your next house hack as quick as you can. So that was my thought there. So I went in, I rented out the top unit, lived in the bottom, but that top unit wasn't quite covering my mortgage. And so what I did was I rented my bedroom out on Airbnb and I lived behind a curtain in this like room divider in the living room on a futon for a year. And that really propelled me because that was an extra $1,100 a month. I was living for free plus making about $600 a month on cash flow, And that really set the foundation for me to buy my second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, now I've got like 14 units and so on. So, wow. So like a traditional house hack is somebody, maybe not traditional, but an example of a house hack would be somebody buys a four bedroom house, they move into one of the bedrooms and then they rent out the other rooms by the room. So whereas a house would maybe normally rent for 1500 a month for the house, house hack numbers, if you're renting out the rooms individually, you could charge a little bit more. So maybe the house rents for 2000 uh, instead. Is there a rule of thumb that when you're doing that analysis that says, oh, I could normally rent this for 1500 so I can now rent it for 2000 Or do you do deep analysis on every property? Like how much more do you get to rent it for when you get to house hack a house? So in Denver, right, if you're going to buy like a five, I think the five bed, three bathroom houses are really the best for a house hack uh, in, in, in the sense that you're describing with the rent by the room style. And so a five bedroom, three bedroom, five bedroom, three bathroom house will rent for about 26, 2700 generally. If you were to rent it out by the room, you're getting 37, 3800 pretty easily. So typically it's about a thousand dollars more per month by the room than it would be as a traditional single family unit. 
And so I think it's super beneficial in your first few properties to buy it and do it rent by the room, right? Because you want to get as much cash flow as you can at first. It is more work. It is harder. It's harder to find a property manager to do it. Like those are all the downsides to it. But once you can like get your nest egg to a certain amount, you can always switch it back to a single family home. Sure. You take less cash flow, but it's, you know, at that point you're looking to scale. Right. And so you can't really scale the rent by the room strategy, or at least it's, I'm sure you can. It's just much more difficult too. Yeah. So you bought that first duplex and the, and so that version of it was like, you're going to rent out one side and live in the other. Did you know right away you were going to end up sharing your half of the duplex too? Or, or did you first look at that and say, I could rent out one side and live in the other and be okay? No, I knew I was going to be living in the living room. It was kind of one of those things that I wanted to do just because you know, I had that uh, Dave Ramsey quote in my head where, you know, live like no one else now so you can live like they dreamed later. So I was like, how can I put myself in like the worst possible position to make the most possible money and, and just see, you know, just see where it takes me. Right. So you slept in a, you slept in a living room behind a curtain and rented out your room on Airbnb. Would people that stayed there in Airbnb were like, were they like, dude, this is crazy. You're living behind a curtain or were they like, cool. Thanks for giving us the room. Like what, what was that part? Like, I think a lot of people listening would be like, what? Like, like and you made the sacrifice and now you're doing great. But like, so what, what was that like? Yeah. So it's funny. Like no one really even questioned it. I think people just thought I was broke and needed someone and just needed to make some money from my house. Right. Um, but I would have really genuine conversations with a lot of the, the roommates or the, the guests coming in and out, you know, every three to five days, you know, two or three of them, I'm honestly still in touch with today, right? Like four years later. And so I made some good friends throughout this whole process and really I'm a huge traveler too. So it, it satisfied my travel bug, right? Like meeting people from Australia, New Zealand, Poland, you know, all over the U S it's just like, It was cool. It was actually like really fun for a year. It was really fun. Rockstar Nation, this is Aaron Muchastegui with a quick commercial break from our sponsor, Rent Ready. And this one is all about maintenance. Did you know the number one reason that a tenant leaves a rental is lack of response around maintenance? With Rent Ready's brand new 24-7 maintenance service plans, you can have your maintenance managed for you. It also includes emergency services. Rent Ready, the property management app, recently added more support for landlords. Not only can you get hands-off maintenance coordination to troubleshoot your tenant's repairs for you, but you can also streamline your rental property cash flow with increased rental retention rates. With Rent Ready, you can sleep in on the weekends knowing your repairs are handled from start to finish. In addition to making maintenance, you can manage everything else easier too, like collecting rent, listing units, screening tenants, and signing leases, all from the phone in your hand. Get luxury style maintenance services for your tenants and free weekends for yourself when you sign up for Rent Ready. You know, I, I want to add a couple things in here too. You know, I had interviewed Ryan Brone, the founder of Rent Ready, in episode 939. So if you want to hear more about Rent Ready and what they've done, go check out that episode with Ryan. And when it comes to maintenance, you guys have heard me say, I have a ton of rental properties. And one of the things I did after owning those for about a year was start to outsource the nighttime calls. There's nothing worse than getting a call at 10 or 11 at night saying my air conditioner's not working, my heater's not working. And I used to have to go to like 10 different companies to do that. One for my rents, one for my property management, one for the repairs. And it looks like Rent Ready is doing all of that in one package. So for this month only, you can still try Rent Ready for one year and only for $1 when you use our special code ROCKSTAR. Use code ROCKSTAR and sign up for Rent Ready's annual plan at rentready.com. 
That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com. Use the code ROCKSTAR and you can get rent ready for a whole year for just a buck. So the average, so what's the average Airbnb person that's coming to rent your room and share the house? What are they there in Denver for just for travel themselves? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say 80% of the time it was a couple just traveling, looking to see Denver. They were in town for a Broncos game or a Rockies game. Maybe they were just driving through town. Sometimes they were just going up, you know, spend a few days in Denver that wanted to head up to the mountains for a few days. Uh, I think anyone who comes to Denver, and I think the mountains are a hundred percent better than Denver. Like Denver without the mountains is you know, no offense to anyone from like Milwaukee, but I say it's like Milwaukee, right? Not, not as great or uh, sexy as a city, but if you were to, and so, but if you're going to come to Denver to the mountains, you might as well see Denver while you're here. Right. And so that's kind of why I think people stay for two, three nights and yeah, I mean, it, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many mountains there. There's so many ski places within a couple hours of Denver. You fly into Denver for all of them. I mean, the first time I went up to Breck and Aspen and some of those places, you fly into fly into Denver, then you've got a two hour drive or something to to get up there. So I could see people staying longer. And I guess how like I flew into Denver once a couple of years ago. I mean, this I'm sure it's not happening today. But every hotel in the city was booked. I you know it was like oh we're going to Denver tonight, and it was like had to make a choice last minute to go there for a business thing. And I got there and there wasn't a single hotel that had any availability. And I was thinking, that's crazy. Cause I got on the plane thinking I'll just book one when I get there. And it was like hundred percent occupancy in the city. And there must've been a game or something going on. Uh, but I could see that if there's a, you know, if there's high demand for hotels there that people are actually saying like, maybe that helps out with your Airbnb, but you don't Airbnb a room anymore and live in the living room anymore. I'm assuming. No, yeah, no, I'm past that. That was only that was only year one, and then I kind of, I kind of, you know, in 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 the, in the book, I talk about the 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 comfort continuum, which you mm-hmm. know, on one side is comfortability, the other side is profitability, and you know, at first, I like to stretch on that side of profitability as much as you can, and then as mm-hmm. you get your second and third one, you've got more passive income, you start to become wealthier, you slowly move towards comfortability, sacrificing some profit, but you know, no one wants to live behind a curtain for the rest of their lives. So. Yeah. I love, I love that. So you bought that one and then you said, okay, now I'm going to, and you're, I mean, you're saving money by living in the living room. So then you're like, maybe I can also save money by becoming an agent. And so the, so at first you were just an agent yourself to, to buy your properties. And then so somewhere, but it was like 2019, I think you said, mm-hmm. okay, I'm actually going to be an agent now for other people too. So you had done deals, but you didn't have to do any of the, like you had to do the agent skills of like, essentially you were transaction coordinating your own deal, but you were also underwriting the investment deal, but you hadn't really been an agent yet. So I would say like 2019 is when you actually got to be an agent. And once you had a client, what was your first deal like um, when you started doing it for clients? Was it just buddies wanting house hacks too? And you found them or what was the, what was the niche? So the first one was just my buddy who wanted to house hack and he knew that I had house hacked three times and was like, well, if there's anyone that's going to find me a house hack in Denver, it's going to be you. And so I just want to do exactly what you did. And so I was like, okay, well, that's easy enough. We went, we found him a five bedroom, two bathroom house. It was a flip, totally redone. He lived in the downstairs, uh, the bigger room downstairs. And, you know, he actually added a bedroom. So it was a four, two, but he turned it into a five, two. And now he rents out all five of those bedrooms. 
uh, he's making probably a little over three grand a month and his mortgage is a little over two grand. Yeah. So, yeah. So how many, so the, how many deals did you do in 2019? Uh, 2019, I probably did eight or nine deals. Okay. And the, and then what's the average sales price in Denver or where you of the deals you do? So in Denver, uh, average size is probably in 2019, it was around 400,000, right? 2020, I had like a crazy year. Like it went up a lot more than that. But yeah, so that was my 2019. So it was about, I mean, it ends up being about 10 grand, 10 to 12 grand a transaction on a commission basis. Okay. So the, so, so 2019, you had a, a good year and a good year when it came to, Hey, you were kind of doing this extra on the side you did nine transactions and you made 10 grand a piece. And it was, you know, looking at deals along the way, were you still buying houses for your more houses for yourself too? At that time I was just buying like one house hack a year. Okay. And so I had purchased my house hack in 2019. I didn't make any other purchases in 2019. I was under contract for three out of state purchases uh, at the end of 2019, but we ended up closing in 2020. Okay. So then 2020 hits and the, and your first couple months you were able, I guess what also made it easier for you to take advantage of the situation is you were on all those re representing investors. Was it all house hacks? Was anybody like trying to buy to go move in or was it just as an investment basis? I think every single one of my clients except one was a house hack or investor the, uh, the one that was not wanted to invest in a couple, like wanted to turn it into a rental in a few years. Yeah. So I guess like there was a half a person that wasn't like an investor. Yeah, you, gotta, you still got to put your eyes yeah. on it in that investment way. But at least you got to take the emotion out of it. So whereas a lot of families were probably not wanting to buy in April and May, your investors mm-hmm. were like, hey, go get me a deal. I still want to have, I still want to buy another house and rent it out as long as it cash flows right. So that's where you were in this unique situation where there wasn't emotion tied to a deal or moving and, you know, getting a deal. Now they were kind of, uh, you had some well-trained investors to get through that. So then by May, June, it started to be the real estate market started to go up. Was were your clients the rest of the time in 2020? Did you start to have more people that were actually trying to live in the house or was it all investor or mostly investor type people? So it, it's that combination, right? It's they wanted to live in the house and it's an investor. So I would say most yeah. of the clients are house hackers. So probably say 70 or so percent are house hackers. The rest 30 are just traditional buy and hold investors. And so for the house hackers, yeah, I mean, they were trying to live in the house and they were trying to, you know, cash flow it when they moved out. Now, I, I would say that there is a decent bit of emotion in there, uh, more so than traditional investors, because okay. these guys, you know, they're putting 20 or 30 grand down. And when it's your first investment, most of the guys I'm working with and girls I'm working with are young, right? They're in their twenties and 30 grand is most of their life savings. And so, you know, we're kind of working with them to make an investment that is the largest investment of their lives. And there is a little bit of emotion there, not emotion of like, oh, the cabinets aren't the right color, but just like, what happens if I don't get the place filled, right? oh my God, the inspection comes back and holy crap, right? And so coaching them through the inspection and coaching them through any like low appraisals and, and making the, helping them see the forest through the trees is really what I think I got good at in 2020. Yeah, the, I guess that's a, it's a great point. When I think of investors, as a, when I go buy a house as an investor, it's like, does it pencil, right? And so it's easy for me to say, it's not an emotional, it's a business decision, but the, 
but I was all, but even in April, May, I was emotional because I was a stressed out investor going, I don't want to invest in anything right now. The, the, the sky's falling, but, but you're right. So I guess the other side of that is they're also going to live there. Like they're going to live there. And for them, it's a temporary place to live. So maybe they don't have the same emotion as living there forever, but they do, it is their life savings. They do have to decide like, is this laid out in a way that we could have roommates without feeling weird and, and things like that. So so what are some of the ways that you cater to investors or if somebody, if, if somebody's an agent out there right now and they want to start adding, you know, representing investors to their tool belt, uh, what would you, what would you recommend? Well, the first thing you have to do is invest yourself, right? Cause as, as an investor, you don't want to work with someone that's not an investor. Like yep. if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. Uh, and, and that is the, the number one thing. Uh, number two thing is you also have to start learning the language of an investor. You need to start talking like an investor. You have to start thinking like an investor. So uh, if you if you walk into a house, if I walk into a house, like I couldn't tell you about the oak cabinets in the year, right? Like I'll tell you, mm-hmm. hey, what year is the furnace? What year is the AC? When are you going to need to replace the roof? Like like what are some like minor upgrades you could do to increase rents? Like that's the stuff you want your realtor to tell you. Uh, and you yeah. also want them to maybe help you tell, tell help them tell, help you as a realtor, you want to tell your client, Hey, how much is this going to cost you? Right. And then how much increase in rent are you going to get because of this thing? And is it worth it or is it not worth it? Uh, and I would say in most cases, people, at least in Denver, like people want to rent in Denver. And so if you go crazy with upgrades, you're really not going to get a huge return. People just want to live in Denver. They don't care about the place, especially as a rental. And so you also want to make sure that you're catering to your target market, right? You don't want to have the nicest house in the neighborhood with quartz countertops and all that. I've made that mistake, right? Try to get that nicest, try to make it the nicest house in the neighborhood. And then you still can't get the rent because it's not the great neighborhood. So. Yeah. I love that first piece of advice you gave that if someone wants to represent investors, because investors are great clients for real estate agents, because they're usually repeat clients. You're usually going to do I mean, anyone can be a repeat client for a real estate agent, but investors tend to be repeat clients more often, whereas somebody might move from their house every three to four years, an investor might have you help them buy a house every year or every two years. Like that's going to be their goal. So they get to be repeat more often. So getting to go invest yourself, you know, as an agent, if you're wanting to represent investors to go try it. So if you want to go try house hacks or you want to go try any sort of investing, being able to buy it yourself so you can walk the walk and talk the talk. I think that's really important. And I think, I think 2020 taught us to diversify. You know, I think I wish that all agents were investors because when 20 in most of 2020, the businesses that I have that, that I used to make money for every month, you know, buying and selling foreclosures that has gone to nowhere because of foreclosure moratoriums. But the stuff that has made us money this year has, was our investments before. And so being diversified out there, you know, agents, the, like Craig got to talk about like, Hey, I got this commission and I'm getting that extra money, you know, thinking of the commission as extra money to go towards something. Maybe, maybe the first transaction covers your bills and the second transaction goes toward your future investments. And then I really like the thing you said, like one of the differences between rentals and, you know, and flips or other investments is if you put, uh, you know, $10,000 worth of upgrades in a house, you know, really high end appliances, granite countertops, great flooring, you know, great thing of that. You are usually going to sell it for more than $10,000 more than you were, right? You're going to add 10,000 upgrades and you're going to sell it for $20,000 more. Well, rent is a lot different because there's these, these parts of rent that just don't get any higher, right? There's certain neighborhoods. I bought this apartment complex in a, in like a small town in Texas. And my plan was, 
hey, I, the rents are really low right now. They were like, you know, $600 a, a unit. Maybe they were less. And I was like, I'm going to rehab them all and put in, you know, new cabinets, new, 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 new granite, new appliances, new flooring. And I'm going to be able to rate, you know, rent it for so much more. And I didn't get to, I only got to rent it for like $25 more because what I, what I learned hard about that neighborhood is it was a neighborhood where people just weren't going to pay more than 675, no matter where I got to, they couldn't afford it. Anyone that that could afford more was going to go live in a different neighborhood. So you do have to look at our ROI a lot differently with rentals, what are um, what are some of the things that when you did do improvements to houses, it really helped your rental ROI for regular investments or house hacks or anything? So I would say paint goes a very long way. Yeah, uh, painting the trim and the walls, uh, floors go a decent way. You know, if the carpet is ratty and all that kind of stuff, and really, it's kitchens and bathrooms that people fall in love with, and so. And you don't need to make kitchen, you don't need quartz countertops, right? I think granite countertops are perfectly fine, especially for a rental. They're a little bit more durable and also a little bit cheaper. Uh, one thing my girlfriend did, which actually worked out really well for her, was there was this like vinyl rollout, basically like tape stuff, right? And you can turn like a Formica looking countertop into a butcher block looking countertop, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it, it, and the tenants, they're not real estate professionals, right? They're literally looking for a place to live. And one of them actually is looking to invest in real estate. He's like, oh, whoa, you've got nice butcher block countertops. And like, yeah. you couldn't even notice, right? Unless you really look. And so stuff like that for rentals actually may go a long way. And, you know, it costs just such a little bit amount of money. So what about then, your guy that your, your recent deal or maybe, or your, your friend that added a bedroom, mm-hmm. right? So what, what does it cost to add a bedroom in a house and what sort of, and how much extra did that add to his projected rent? Yeah. So adding a bedroom, especially for rent by the room is, is probably one of the most valuable things you could do. And it also adds value to a house. And so, right. So the, the place was four bedroom, two bath, and it was 2000 square feet. Any house with 2000 square feet in Denver, likely you can add a fifth bedroom. And so what, what that consisted of was basically just like cutting off a piece of the basement, putting up a wall and adding a door and running some electrical through that wall. Uh, that totaled him about $1,600. Wow, and I've heard people do it for as little as eight hundred and as much as two thousand. Uh, and so, let's say it's the absolute max, right? Let's say you don't get a good deal and you get it, you do it for two thousand dollars to add that wall. He's making an extra six fifty a month because he added that bedroom. He's paid back for that two thousand dollars in under three months, right? So yeah. that is one of the best strategies uh, is to add a bedroom. It seems like the, yeah, so it's, it seems like that, like adding a bedroom, if you've got the square foot, even if it was going to cost you $10,000 to add a bedroom, the, because it was more complicated or something like that. If you're adding $600 a month, you look at that investment. Like if I could buy a house for 10,000 and, and if it rented for a hundred dollars a month, I'd be happy. Right. So when you get to, you know, essentially adding a room is like buying a house for 10,000 bucks, but it rents for 650 bucks. The, um, that seems like a great, there's probably a big strategy in that finding houses in Denver that only have three rooms that are big and, and splitting that living room up and other things. The, oh, yeah, what, are, sure. what are the biggest problems you've had with house as a landlord? Like, have you had many problems with like people sharing rooms? Do people fight? Do people disagree? Do they tell you, Hey, kick this guy out. We don't like him anymore. Like what's the, what's the worst part about house hacking? That is probably the worst part. Uh, I would say if you do a good job at screening your tenants in creating a culture within your house, then 
then you're not going to run into those issues as frequently. Uh, I, before I learned all this stuff, right, I'm kind of learning as I go too. I did not do that. And I just kind of accepted the first people the first few months were okay. But then, you know, there was some animosity at, at some points and, you know, there was some yelling and some fighting and all that. And I've had to kind of play, play mom and dad for a while, but eventually they moved out and it was fine. They always paid rent and all that kind of stuff. So it was good. And yeah, I mean, that, though, that is, you know, it's a downside that I, you have to, you have to highlight, right? Absolutely. It's a risk and it's a downside. Now, one thing that we've done and a lot of my clients have done recently is you basically niche your house out. So, you know, snowboarding and rock climbing are really big things to do here in Denver area. And so it's, you know, rock, rock climbers paradise or snowboard heaven kind of place to live. And you're going to attract once they did that, they started attracting snowboarders, they started attracting climbers, people that they actually liked and wanted to hang out with. And now they're all friends, right? They're going snowboarding together, they're going climbing together, they're doing all these things together. So if you are going to do the right by the room strategy, I think that would be the biggest piece of advice would be to like target who you want to, you know, who you want, who you want to live there. Yeah, I could see that like finding marketing to the people that are going to share your lifestyle, especially if you're living in one of the rooms and and renting out the rest of them. Is it harder to evict somebody if they're just renting a room? Like, is there, are there different laws for people that are just renting a room? Is it easier, harder, anything different? So I've never had to evict anybody renting by the room. And I would, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's saying something right there, right? Yeah. So I, I would, and I would say it, it is going to be harder to evict someone for renting by the room because the sheriff isn't going to come up and put a, you know, a notice of eviction on someone's bedroom door, right? Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the address in the house. And so really there, there's a couple of ways that you can kind of mitigate this risk, right? One way is, and a lot of people do this, is you just sign everybody to month to month leases. If someone is horrible, you just say, Hey, you've got 30 days. We're going to, we're going to move out. We're going to, we're going to terminate this lease. A lot of people do that. One time I didn't have to, I, I did have to kick someone out and I did uh, cash for keys. And uh, if you want to get into it, we can, it's kind of a funny story. Um, yeah, so we'll talk about that. So, so what was yeah. your, so, so you had a tenant that wasn't good. And, and, and so what did you tell him? Yeah. So I had a tenant, I had two tenants uh, and I got greedy here during a rehab and they wanted to live in the bedroom, the bedrooms outside of where the construction was happening. And I got greedy and I said, yes. And I charged them a pretty cheap amount and they were, you know, doing hard illegal drugs downstairs in the basement. And I was like, I found out, I called the cops the cops couldn't do anything for some reason. I guess it's legal to do these hard illegal drugs in your bedroom. And so I basically said, hey, you guys need to get out in the next week. I will give you all of your rent you've ever paid me, your entire security deposit and $500 to get out in the next week. And they got out in the next week and it was fine, all good and dandy. But I got lucky, right? If they, if they caused a fuss, it could have been a lot harder. And so, you know, many lessons learned there. One, don't be greedy. Two, always screen your tenants. That was the yeah. one time I didn't screen my tenants. And, you know, three, again, if you're, especially if you're going to do this rent by the room strategy, eviction is a lot harder. So yeah. that's a good question you asked. That's, that's really, it's really interesting stuff, right? Because when you look at, as investors right now, we buy a lot of houses that we rent out the house, right? And we, and, but it's tougher and tougher to find deals right now, tougher and tougher to find cash flow. So we've thought about, Hey, is it worth trying to you know be an investor and buy a house and rent all four rooms out, right, to individual people? And how would that? Be? And it's like the return goes up, the uh, the risk probably goes up a little uh, depending on where it is. 
or the strategy. But you know, as agents too, getting to learn and know about all these strategies just helps you be a better agent. Helps you present, pre, you know, present opportunities for your people. So, Craig, how many deals did you do in 2020? Like 95. 95. That's crazy. So, tell, so in in 2019, you did like nine. You said, yeah, you did nine deals. And then before, so, it, but you had had a couple in escrow at the end of 2019. So they, so you started off your 2020 with a few closings right away, mm-hmm. but the, how many closings did you do before COVID went weird? So, so I did about six before okay. March. So, so you had done six average, a little bit better than the year prior, but so you were on pace to do 24 for the year. Mm-hmm. And then March hit and nobody was selling. And so you went to your investors and said, Hey, now is a great time to be able to buy more because no one else is, no one else is doing that. And we can get good deals. How many did you get during that period of, Hey, we can get good deals. Yeah. So in, so, you know, March was when COVID really got big. Right. And so closings would have happened in April, May, and June. Mm-hmm. Uh, so April wasn't great. Right. April, I guess. Yeah. I only did two in April, May. I did, like eight. And then June, I did 11. Wow. So that is where a lot of the momentum came from for sure. Um, and then we really just, you know, continued that. And I was nervous because like, I don't know, in those unprecedented times, you can't really look back at like April, May, and June and think that July, August, and September are going to be any different are going to be better. Right. Yeah. And so, but I mean, they were better. So we just started really kind of crushing it. Man, none of us could have predicted any of this stuff. I mean, somebody probably did. There's probably smart people out there that predicted a lot of it, but most of the decisions I made in the last nine months were yeah, most. I got I got half of my guesses right and half of my guesses wrong uh, along the way for what, what would be a good deal and, and what wouldn't. So if you were going to go back and give yourself advice now, I mean, you've been an active agent for a couple of years, right? And so I guess one of the big things I would say is, hey, don't discount being a specialized niche agent investor. Because yeah. Craig did ninety something deals this year, and the and he just got his license a couple of years ago. And you're a young guy, and you started with people that were first time home buyers, and your niche ended up really helping you break through up there. I mean, your numbers were huge. There's a lot of people that had great 2020s, but the but not very many people that have been agents for two years that had great 2020s, mm-hmm. right? Like that was that was one of the the unique things that people that were doing great before crushed it last year. The people that were just getting started had a really rough year. So there's something to be said about just investing and niching, but what, what advice would you give a new agent right now? Or do you wish someone would have told you when you got started? Like, what have you learned something in real estate that you're like, Oh, I wish I would have done this instead. Well, I guess one thing I wish I would have done instead is, you know, we're creating a team now. So I would wish that I probably started the team thing earlier because I did run myself ragged last year. However, uh, as a new agent, especially if you want to niche out in like an investor type approach, you want to make sure that you're documenting your stuff and you want to put it on social media and you want to, you know, if you've got a newsletter, send it out to your clients, let them know what deals you're doing, they're doing in Denver. I mean, I've got a lot of clients that were just like, how much can you cash flow in Denver? Like, how are you getting a thousand dollars a month in cash flow? Like on all of these deals, like, is it too good to be true? And we're like, no, I can point to like 35 deals where we're cash flowing a thousand dollars or more, right? It's very easy, very consistent. You just have to be a little bit creative. And, you know, you tell them, I just tell them, hey, this is what you have to do to cash flow that much. And these are areas you have to be in. And people get pretty excited about it. And then they start telling their friends and really just kind of spirals from there. 
So sharing your wins and sharing how good of a deal it was really helped people start asking you. And you, and you mentioned the newsletter plus social media. But yeah, I think that would do that too. I think being able to say, hey, this is a $400,000 investment that cash flows this much after all, you know, mortgage and people go, people want to invest in real estate right now. Like it's no secret, like people want to do it, but everybody says, I can't get a good deal. It doesn't cash flow. So you need to say like, Hey, we've got great cash flow. That's like the, that's like, it used to be like the car, the, the auto dealerships in the newspaper would say this car, 10 grand. And then you'd get there like, well, we had one of those for 10 grand, but now we have this one for 25 that's left. But you were able to go like, Hey, this house makes you that much money. And they're like, really? And you're like, no, really? That's how we do it. That sounds like a great way. So you share your wins and you get to you know, keep building it up. What do you think is going to be the number one way for agents to succeed in 2021? I think it's really going to be, man, that's a tough question. You know, I guess if you're continue, if you're successful now, if you consider yourself successful now, I would say continue doing what you're doing and maybe just double down on it, right? Also, a lot of it is going to be people are going to speculate and think there's going to be this stock market crash and this you know, real estate crash that's going to happen. And you really just have to tell them, especially if you're an investor-minded agent, that like, it does not matter what the market does, right? The market, we, we're going to make sure that your property cash flows you when the market's up, when the market's down, and when the market stays the same. So no matter what happens, you never are in a position where you're forced to sell. And you explain to them that the people in 2008 lost so much money because they were, it wasn't the people that were buying cash flow. Right. Those are those right. guys are very rich right now. The guys that lost all their money are the guys that were putting 125 getting loans 125% LTV. Right. The guys that are flipping and trying to make a quick buck that didn't know what they were doing. And really just the inexperienced folks is who who lost a lot of money in real estate back in 2008. And mm -hmm. so you kind of put that all into perspective. And also the whole thing where, you know, people that people think real estate's going to go down because it went down, you know, 10 years ago in the last recession. I mean, before that, real estate hadn't really gone down significantly since like the 1930s, right? Despite the fact the stock market had multiple recessions since then. And you look at this whole COVID thing and who it's impacting, right? It's impacting mostly, you know, bartenders, waiters, right? The kind of people that yeah. don't make a lot of money on paper who can't afford to buy houses anyway, right? It's mostly the renters that are being affected. And so to think that real estate is going to have anywhere near of a, uh, impacts that did in 2008, I think is foolish. And m maybe it drops a little bit or maybe it slows a little bit, but again, cash flow is king. Yeah. I think that's great advice when you're buying for cash flow. The when we first started investing in like 2014, 2015, man, we remembered the crash. We remembered it deeply. We were building houses. We remember the foreclosures. We remember the, the all the different crazy workouts. And so every time we refinance, we would always be like, we're worried about a crash. Like I'm, I'm always worried about like that crash. And so anytime we would finance, we're like, well, is this note long enough that we'll cash flow through whatever up and down? Like, so the buying cash flow, you know, being able to do that, that, that works in up market, you know, houses can go up 10, 20, 30% down 10, 20, 30%. Rent doesn't go up and down in the, at the same percentage. And if it does, so if your house that you're renting for 1400, you have to rent for 1200 now. You, that's not going to break the bank, right? It shouldn't. It shouldn't, or you're not investing. If you're going to spend, you know, lose twenty four hundred a year on your rental investment, like that's a crisis in in rentals. Uh, I guess a crisis in rentals is people not paying and not being able to be evicted, and hopefully there's you know more government intervention to help with that right now. But but short of this weird weird time of of uh, people being able to not pay rent and not have anything, 
you know, a $200 a month correction would be like, oh, that's a big rental correction. And something that, but when you have a 20% correction on value and people are 90%, you know, levered on a flip, that's when you see big differences. So, well, Craig, as we're starting to run out of time, tell us about I, you. Like you, you're like a guest writer for the Bigger Pockets blog. I see your name when I did a, a, a quick Google as I was prepping for this of just my email inbox, right? It was like, oh, where's that interview notes from for Craig? And all of your Bigger Pockets posts come up on the newsletter they send out. So you do a lot of you know blog posts or stories for them. You've got your book that got published. Uh, what's next for you if people want to reach out to you, find you, talk to you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's probably the best way. I'm at the Fi Guy on Instagram, or you can, you know, if you want to work with us out in Denver, where you know thefiteam.com, and yeah, those are probably the best two places where you know the social media that I actually check regularly. Yeah, very cool. So the Fi Guy on social media. If people want to invest in Denver, they want to learn more about it. They can go, or they can go find your book, learn more about house hacking as they go out there. I really like to get to hear your perspective on kind of on the market and really that analysis that you did at the end that just said like this, we're living through a weird time of economic ups and downs, but the, but it's just a little bit different. It has been this year. It's been two different recoveries. There have been some people that have suffered a ton, you know, the service industry people. I think most of those service industry people should become real estate agents because they've got real skills, real people skills right now and maybe they'd do better uh in real estate but the, the service industry has really struggled and then but like the finance sector has hardly any unemployment one of the interesting articles we talked about a couple months ago was the fact that these interest rates keep getting lower and lower but it's really only helping the people that were doing good already like the people with, with uh you know no unemployment the people that need it the bartenders the workers it is harder for them to buy jobs because most of their income has always been kind of under the table Right. And so they're not getting to take advantage of those low rates right now. So a lot of interesting perspectives out there. Craig, I'm going to go follow you on Instagram, too. We're going to be able to chat the real estate rock stars. Hopefully you guys had a great as good of a time listening to this as I did. I think I learned a lot and look forward to reaching out some more. So, guys, thank you for listening. Craig, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. All right, real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Muchastegui jumping in again to thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully you guys loved listening to that one. And I wanna make sure that you know about all of the extra resources that we have. And also we need your help. They say podcasts are free. You get to listen to podcasts for free. But what is the cost of that podcast? I would say if I could beg you to pay anything for that podcast, I would say the cost of the podcast is going and giving a review. So whether you download it on Google or Apple or YouTube or anywhere else, please go give us a review. Say what you liked, what you didn't like. It helps us get better guests. The more reviews, the higher we get in the rate rankings. Right now, we are the biggest podcast out there for real estate agents. And we want to keep that spot because we know there's lots of podcasts out there. So go give us a review. Also, be sure to go to hybendigital.com. If you liked any of the resources that those real estate agents talked about, We've got a huge video vault of those resources for free. Every penny that comes on the podcast that we interview, they give us something that helps them get their deals or helps them work with their clients. And we put that in the toolbox in our vault for you. So go to hybendigital.com and you can get it. If you're looking for real estate education, go to rebusuniversity.com. We have all sorts of courses in there to help agents succeed in real estate, how to get the listing, how to negotiate deals, you know, how to become an investor, all sorts of different stuff rebusuniversity.com. 
And if you want to chat with me, go find me on Instagram. If you come find me on Instagram, you can send me messages. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. We try to put a bunch of content out there too. You can find me in two different places. It's at rerockstars.com for our Real Estate Rockstars page or at erinamuchastegui.com for my personal Instagram page where I can chat with you about all sorts of different things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.